Welcome to part eight of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started in this week's installment where Nate and Jennifer visit Diane, the woman being visited by a mysterious apparition, we see Jennifer's new office and then visit Nate's Uncle Bill. Please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps me to allow to continue providing audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So, make sure to follow all the authors on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 23 Jennifer pulled the van up to a spot near the entrance to the Oakley Arms. Nate let out a breath. Come on, my driving's not that bad, Jennifer protested. Wasn't so much the driving as this thing we're riding in, Nate told her. I always wondered what happened to the Scooby-Doo mystery machine. I love that show, and Fred wishes he had a van as cool as this one, Jennifer said. You liked Scooby-Doo? But they always found out that the ghost was really old man Jenkins trying to scare people away from the old mine because he found there was really gold in it. Nice summary of every episode ever. But there was something about Fred that just made me swoon. Jennifer looked at Nate, sizing him up. Have you ever considered wearing an ascot? No. Please do not project your cartoon fantasies on me. Oh, come on. You know you had a thing for Daphne. Nope. I was a Velma guy. Always liked the smart girls. Jennifer nodded approvingly. Good answer. Shall we? She asked, looking out at the facade of the stately old Oakley Arms. They exited the van and walked up to the front door. The outer door was open, and there was a beat-up security phone hanging on the wall with instructions for looking up the tenants posted next to it. Jennifer had the information already and merely dialed Diane's apartment number. Hello, who is it? A female voice asked. Hi, Diane. It's Jennifer Day and Detective Rainey. Can we come up? The door buzzed. Nate pulled it open with his good arm and held it for Jennifer. She hung up the phone and entered the lobby, and Nate followed. Jennifer paused to admire the architectural detail in the old building. Despite the renovations over the years, much of the ornate plasterwork had been preserved. The counter, where a concierge would have once served, stood empty, home to brochures and notices about the proper procedures for requesting maintenance. She tried to imagine what it had been like when it first opened. A tall, uniformed doorman out front, the obsequious yet efficient concierge tending to the tenant's needs as he surreptitiously tracked their comings and goings. She saw couples dressed up for an evening on the town, the women in long furs, the men in dapper overcoats and top hats. Nice, Nate said, taking in the surroundings. Jennifer slowly turned, sending her gaze into every corner and toward every light fixture and the framed paintings on the walls. At one time, this was the place to be. A lot of the people who made this city run lived in this building. Progress. Things change, Nate commented. Come on, the elevators are over there. Jennifer pushed the button to call the elevator, and Nate watched the old-fashioned metal needle swing in an arc over the numbers of the floors as the elevator descended. He couldn't remember the last time he'd seen anything like it outside of a movie. One of the set of elevator doors opened, and a middle-aged couple stepped out. They regarded Jennifer and Nate suspiciously. Are you the Silvermans? Jennifer asked them. Nate looked at her quizzically, not knowing what the question had to do with what they were doing there. No, answered the man. I don't know who that is, he added for good measure. Great, Jennifer said, turning to Nate. They're probably still up there. We can catch them before they skip town. Jennifer guided Nate into the elevator and pushed the button for the tenth floor. 
Bye, thank you, she said to the couple as the doors closed. What was that all about? Nate asked. I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like being goofy. They'll be talking about the Silvermans for weeks. Don't you ever just mess with people for fun? No, Nate said firmly, and turned his attention to the elevator doors. Okay, but don't blame me if the Silvermans get away again, she said. Nate rolled his eyes and tried to contain a smile. He had to admit it was kind of funny, but he wasn't about to let her know he thought so. Jennifer pulled a rumpled paper bag from her pocket. She poured a small pile of candy corn into one hand and offered it to Nate. Candy corn? No thanks, Nate answered, adding yet another item to the list of Jennifer Day's quirks he was mentally compiling. The elevator doors opened up onto a hallway with the smell of stale carpeting. The rug that ran the length of the hall was getting threadbare in places, and the wallpaper was also showing its age. Jennifer checked the apartment numbers, then turned to the right and led Nate to the far end of the hallway. She knocked on the door for apartment 10H. Almost instantly, the one behind them opened up. Oh, hello, said the old woman who poked her head out. Are you here to see Diane? she asked. Nate and Jennifer exchanged a puzzled look. I thought she lived here, Jennifer said, pointing to the door they had just knocked on. She does, she does, the old woman assured them. I didn't know she was expecting any visitors. Diane's door opened. Nate and Jennifer swung their attention to the attractive young woman standing there. But she sighed and spoke to the nosy woman from across the hall. Hi, Rose. Just some friends visiting. I didn't know you had any friends, dear, Rose said. Then she explained to Nate and Jennifer. She's always working, or so she says, she added teasingly. Thanks, Rose. Have a nice day. Diane ushered Jennifer and Nate into her apartment and quickly closed the door. Well, you don't have to worry about anyone robbing the place, Nate observed. Diane laughed uncomfortably. I guess not, she said. Hi, I'm Dr. Jennifer Day, Jennifer said. And this is Detective Nate Rainey. Yes, you mentioned that on the intercom. You think this is a police matter? She asked. I'm not currently on active duty. I'm just consulting with Dr. Day on this investigation. Oh, okay, Diane said. Well, please, come on in. Have a seat. She closed the door, locked the bolt, and fastened the chain, then directed them to a sitting area in front of the television. Jennifer took in much of the place as she could and settled down on the couch. I love this place. Such tall ceilings. It has a lot of character. She pulled out her cell phone and activated a recording app. Nate continued walking around the apartment, taking in details with his detective's eye. Yes, that's one of the reasons I liked it too. It is a pain of dust up there, but it just feels less like living in a box and more like a home. Diane sat down next to Jennifer and took a deep breath. So, where do we start? Let's go back to the beginning, Jennifer suggested. When did you move in? It was just over six months ago now, Diane began. I'd gotten a promotion at my job, and with that came longer hours. My living situation at the time was a little tense, and I wanted to be closer to my office, so I found this place. The rent was reasonable, and I fell in love with the big windows and the wooden floors. For the first few months, there were things that seemed odd. Stuff not where I expected it to be, new noises, the things that are just different enough to notice until you don't anymore. There were a few electrical problems, but the superintendent was always very responsive with any issues I had. Nate listened as he continued walking around the apartment, looking out the windows, running his fingers over the ridges of the radiator, taking in the photographs that were displayed in various places. Then I started noticing that there were some spots in the apartment that were always cold. I must have rearranged the furniture a dozen times. The super told me that it was common in an old building like this with radiant heat and tall ceilings, and that a lot of the tenants got space heaters to help out, but to make sure I got one with a timer because if you left it on for too long, it could flip a breaker. Sounds like my old office. Sometimes I'd wake up at night thinking I heard a voice, but I didn't think anything of that. It could have been someone's TV too loud on the floor above or below me. 
or just a dream. I didn't start putting it all together until the night I saw him. Nate stopped his survey of the apartment and casually jumped into the questioning. Him? You saw a man in your apartment? Well, yes and no. I saw something, but I'm always very fastidious about locking my apartment door. Have you always been, or is that a more recent habit? Nate asked. To be honest, now that I'm living alone, I have been more cautious. Go on, tell me about that night, Jennifer urged. Diane positioned herself so she was facing Jennifer directly, putting Nate to her back. Well, I usually like to relax in a hot shower, you know, where you let the bathroom get steamy like a sauna. So good for the pores, Jennifer said. Right, so I was finishing up, drying off, and I started feeling strange, like I was being watched. I thought I saw something behind me reflected in the mirror. When I turned around, there he was, standing in the middle of the bathtub. I think I had the feeling he was maybe floating. Did you see his feet? What? Do you remember if you could see his feet? Diane thought back. I don't know. I couldn't be sure. I mean, if he was standing in the tub, I wouldn't have seen his feet, so I guess I don't know. Is that important? Go on. Anyway, he said something to me, or he tried to. I didn't hear him, but I could see his lips move. I was so surprised that when I was turning, I slipped and fell and hit my head. I don't know exactly how long I was out, but when I woke up, he was gone. Did you see a doctor? Nate asked. No, Diane confessed. I had a cut, but it didn't need stitches. I took a few Tylenol and went to bed. After that, I started staying with a friend from work. I didn't want to sleep here. I was scared. I don't blame you, Jennifer said. How long did that last? About a week. I would come back here to change clothes, but after a while, I felt like I was paying rent for a closet. So I went to one of those shops that sells crystals and stuff, and bought some sage and some other things to ward off spirits, and I returned home. Did it work? The sage and crystals? Diane laughed. I have no idea, but I haven't seen the man again. There have been other things. The night I saw you on the Mohogan podcast, a bottle of rose water I had on my vanity fell and broke. And I know for a fact that it was nowhere near the edge. What else? Jennifer asked. I don't know, a lot of little things. A bouquet of flowers will wilt quickly, except for a single bloom. I told you about the cold spot, but sometimes it feels like I'm walking through a freezer when I'm standing perfectly still. I get actual goosebumps. And a few times now, I think I've heard the same words, but I can't be sure. It sounds like someone saying, Ouch, it froze. Jennifer raised her eyebrows at that one. Does that make any sense? Diane asked. Not yet, but we don't have all the pieces. Did you save them? Nate asked. Pardon me? The pieces of the bottle. You said it broke. Why, do you want to check them for fingerprints or something? No, but he's got a point. It could mean something. Diane thought. It's probably still in the wastebasket in the bathroom. Nate was the closest and crossed over to the bathroom and turned on the light. He reached for the wastebasket, lifted it up on top of the vanity, then pulled out some makeup-stained tissues, cotton balls, and put them into the sink. He carefully retrieved the broken glass at the bottom and laid the pieces on the flat surface of the vanity, like a puzzle. Diane and Jennifer joined him just as he reassembled the glass fragments into a raised pattern of a rose. Jennifer pulled out her phone and snapped a photo. "'Tell me more about the man you saw,' she suggested." now that they were in the room where the apparition had appeared. What did he look like? What was he wearing? Diane looked at the tub, then turned and looked at it in the reflection in the mirror. He was about as tall as Detective Rainey, short hair, clean-shaven, blue eyes. He had the bluest eyes. He was wearing a raincoat, the old-fashioned kind, thick rubber with metal clasps. Jennifer and Nate exchanged a look. The axeman had been a fireman. Like a fireman would wear? she asked. Diane considered the question. Then after a moment answered, Yes, it could have been. I think so. 
Jennifer crossed to where she had left her bag and fished out a compact version of the magnetometer she used for full-scale investigations. She turned it on and walked around the bathroom. The LEDs lit up and grew brighter. What does that mean? Diane asked. This device detects unusual variations in magnetic fields, like the kind we sometimes see when there is paranormal activity. Or in a bathroom full of metal pipes, Nate suggested. Diane and Jennifer ignored him. Nate continued his reconnaissance of the apartment, while Jennifer had Diane direct her to the places where she felt cold spots or heard voices. Nate noticed a collection of magazines on a table near the front door. Some of them were addressed to Diane Collins, others to Jerry Henderson, at an address that was not the Oakley Arms. He inspected the lock on the door. The chain seemed unusually long. Has Jerry ever been to this apartment? Nate shouted across the room to Diane. Diane and Jennifer both looked at Nate. He's your ex-boyfriend, right? The one you were living with before you moved here? I didn't tell you I had a boyfriend. No, you said you were in an uncomfortable living situation. And you've got magazines with his name and your old address on it. Not quite Sherlock Holmes, but I am a detective. See why I brought him along? Jennifer asked. Yes, he was here once to collect some things, but he hasn't been since. Nate nodded, accepting her explanation. I would recommend you get a police lock installed. I know a guy who will do it for free if you pay for the hardware. Thank you. Is he still living at this address? Nate asked, holding up one of the magazines. Yes. Does he have a car? He does. A black Civic. You wouldn't happen to know the license plate number. I do. Better get busy to afford some gold. Jennifer regarded Diane quizzically. She clarified. BG-B2-4SG. It's a little thing I do to remember phone numbers and license plates. I do the same thing, Nate said with a smile, Then something tickled the back of his mind. A memory. But the thought was banished at the sound of Diane's voice. Are you going to check up on him? I am, if you don't mind. I don't at all. If he's behind any of this, I want to know and I want him to stop. But I don't think he would do something to scare me. It wasn't an ugly breakup. We're still friends. Well, I have some friends on the force who won't mind doing me a favor, Nate said. Jennifer put a reassuring hand on her shoulder. I'd like to do some full-scale surveillance, bring in some more sensitive equipment, and see if we can determine the nature of the phenomena you're experiencing. Nate turned away, returning his attention to the door. Jennifer noticed and continued. Detective Rainey and I would like to spend 24 hours here. See what we can find out. Okay, if that's what it takes. Should I find someplace else to stay? No, you may be more part of this than you know. It'll take a few days for me to get everything together. Plus, I have classes. So, how's next weekend? Saturday? Around noon? That'll give us time to talk to your neighbors beforehand. Oh, is that necessary? I don't know if I want them knowing I asked you to look into this. We're discreet, assured Jennifer. My team is very experienced at getting people to talk about strange things they may have seen without betraying any confidences. Okay, Diane said, still concerned. Does this mean you don't think I'm crazy? Jennifer smiled warmly. Not at all. Listen, I would not be devoting the resources of my team to investigate this if I didn't think there was a good chance this is a legitimate paranormal incident. Nate let out a barely audible sigh. Diane and Jennifer turned their attention to him. He realized the room had fallen silent and turned around to face them. He addressed Jennifer. I thought I was here to offer my expertise. You don't think I'm being stalked by a ghost? Diane asked. I believe you may be being stalked, but not by a ghost. Nate opened the door and stepped outside her apartment. Close the door and secure the chain, he said to Diane. Diane stepped forward and did as Nate instructed. She closed the door on him, then slipped the chain into its slot. Nate opened it. The chain kept it from opening all the way. Then he closed it so it was open just enough for him to slip a pencil through the crack and push the end of the chain out of its groove. He opened the door again. 
You don't need to be able to walk through walls to get in here. Your deadbolt is a little out of line. If it hits the strike plate, you can think it's locked and chained, but... He stepped inside. Jennifer smiled to Diane. Between the two of us, I think we can help find out what's going on. Diane nodded. Okay, let's do this. What else do you need? My staff will be in touch to do some follow-up. Okay, can they call me at home instead of work? I don't want people at the firm to find out that... No problem, Jennifer assured her. I think we have what we need for now. If you experience anything, the slightest sound, temperature change, if anything is out of shape, if you experience anything, the slightest sound, temperature change, if anything is out of place, write it down. Keep a diary. Anything you notice will help. Okay, I can do that. Great. We'll see you next Saturday. Thank you, Diane said, giving Jennifer a grateful hug. She turned to Nate, and he offered her his good hand for an awkward handshake. I do want to send someone around to secure this door. You don't have to convince me any further on that, Diane admitted. Thank you. Jennifer and Nate nodded their final goodbyes and stepped out of Diane's apartment. She closed the door behind them. At almost the same moment, the door across the hall opened, and the old woman stuck her head out. Oh, it's you again. Yes, said Jennifer. We're just leaving. The woman harumphed. Young people today, she said without any further explanation, then disappeared and closed the door. Jennifer looked to Nate and then tried unsuccessfully to contain a laugh. Come on she said to the implacable detective as they walked down the hallway to the elevators. That was funny, in a weird, creepy kind of way. You didn't tell me I'd be giving up my weekend, Nate said, changing the subject. You have somewhere else to be? she asked. I have a dog that eats my house even when I'm there. Oh, right, I forgot, Jennifer admitted as the elevator door opened. If you don't mind a small detour to my new offices, I might be able to help you with that. Chapter 24 Dave exited the elevator and stepped into the lobby of a modern building that smelled of new carpeting and fresh paint. He was carrying a trio of banker's boxes, while also clasping a collection of shopping bags in his hands, making it difficult to see, let alone walk. 909, 909, he kept muttering to himself, so he wouldn't forget the number of their new office he had so carefully memorized before loading himself up with the boxes and bags. He found the small signs posted indicating which direction to go to find the office number he was looking for. He made a right turn and found the correct door. While he supported the boxes with a knee, Dave turned the knob and pushed it open. He re-secured his hold on the boxes, backed into the office, then set the boxes and bags down once he was inside. It was nice. There was a single desk in the center of the room, and the entire space was somewhat larger than the office they had before they were banished to the basement. Not bad. A bit smaller than I expected, but at least it has a window, he said out loud. Two doors on either side of the office opened, and Bits and Emily poked their heads out. Finally found the place, huh? Emily asked. Don't plug in anything until I finish rewiring, Bits warned. What, we have our own offices? Bits and Emily exchanged a look. Well, we have our own offices, she answered with an emphasis on the we. You get this desk. Why? I see four doors, Dave said, referencing the other two doors that were still closed. That one is for Dr. Day, Bits said. And what about this one? Dave asked as he crossed to the fourth door and pulled it open. It was a small office that had been hastily converted into a storage space. Inside were file cabinets, boxes, equipment cases, and shelves filled with miscellaneous items. A closet? Why does this have to be a closet? Then he looked at Bits and Emily. I've been with Dr. Day longer than either of you two. Why do you get offices and I'm stuck at the receptionist's desk? I need a secure environment, Bits answered, then closed the door. Dave and Emily heard the sound of locks whirring into place and the beep of what was likely an alarm system activating. He's going to be living in there, Dave said. Emily nodded. 
You know I should have that office, Dave said to Emily. I deserve that office. Yeah, well, Emily countered. The thing is, I got here first, so I'm afraid there's nothing I can do, really. That's not a reason. We'll sort this out when Dr. Day gets here, Dave challenged, crossing his arms with a look of defiance on his face. Sort out what when I get here, Jennifer asked. Dave turned around and saw Jennifer and Nate standing in the open doorway. Unperturbed, he pointed to Emily. I want her office. Why? Jennifer asked. It's a lot smaller than this is, she said, waving her arm around the common area. Besides, she got here first. But, and you're my number one guy. I can't be traipsing all the way across the office whenever I need you. You're my right hand, Dave. I can't cut you off from the rest of me. Jennifer walked up to Dave and put an arm around him. His demeanor changed immediately, and he smiled. Okay, he said. I'll make it work. She turned to Nate and introduced the members of her team. Detective Nate Rainey, I'd like you to meet my most valuable team member, Dave. And that back there poking her head out is Emily. You've met before. Right, at the hospital. That was all her idea, Emily said. It's nice to meet you both, Nate assured them. Jennifer turned her attention back to Dave. Oh, by the way, we're doing a stakeout at Diane Collins' apartment next weekend, and Nate needs a dog sitter. I was hoping you wouldn't mind having Madge at your place. She's a bit of a terror, and if we left her alone at Nate's, she'd tear the place up. Thanks. Dave's mouth hung open. In the span of less than a minute, he had gone from staking his claim to some private office space to being demoted to dog sitter. Jennifer crossed to her office and went in. Nate walked up to the shell-shocked Dave. Thanks. She said you love dogs. Dave nodded blankly. Great. I'll pack up some food for her. Do you have a yard? Dave shook his head. Nate hissed a wordless warning. Just take her for lots of walks. Hopefully that will work. Dave nodded and offered a meek smile. The detective stepped into Jennifer's office. The room was rather spacious, with the same desk that had followed her to the basement at its center. Two large framed posters adorned the walls, one of the mysterious professor and the other the vintage poster of Houdini. Jennifer was seated behind the desk in a high-backed leather chair, sitting back and enjoying her new office courtesy of the dean's pandering to donors. She smiled at Nate. Nice, huh? I'm guessing this is an improvement from your last office, he asked. Jennifer shivered at the memories. Vast improvement. You have no idea how long it's taken me to fight through the academic prejudice and get some respect from my peers. Turns out all it took was a philanthropist with an interest in parapsychology and a checkbook. I should uh, get going, Nate said. Well, don't go without me, Jennifer warned. Nate looked at her puzzled. You are going to visit your uncle, right? I was thinking about maybe seeing him later this week. Well, I have a free afternoon. Let's do it now. Jennifer stood up from behind the desk. He's at the Atwood home, right? Where all the retired cops go? Yes, how did you... Never mind. Besides, in your condition, you'll want me around to help out. I used to work at a nursing home when I was in college. Taught ballroom dancing. I can catch a falling octogenarian faster than a shortstop can snag a line drive. Jennifer breezed by Nate back into the common area where Dave was unpacking his things onto the desk. Emily had already vanished into her office. I'm going out to do some research with Detective Rainey, she informed Dave. Probably won't be back today. See you Monday. She continued out of the office, not bothering to wait for Nate. Nate looked over at Dave, suddenly realizing how he felt. She does that a lot, Dave warned. Nate nodded, then turned and followed Jennifer. Chapter 25 the Atwood home was nestled on top of a hill, surrounded by a green garden, crisscrossed with walking paths, and dotted with benches. Nate and Jennifer escorted William Rainey down one of these paths, and when they reached a bench across from a bed of chrysanthemums, they sat down. 
So she's obviously not your girlfriend, the older man observed. Why not? Jennifer asked with mock offense. Not saying you shouldn't be. If I was 50 years younger, she wouldn't have been born yet, Nate interjected, preventing his uncle from inadvertently creating an actual offense. Bill smiled and shook his head. It's a different world, he commented. So, he said, directing his comments to Jennifer. Why are you here if not to invite me to a wedding? Nate rolled his eyes and dropped his chin in embarrassment. Well, Jennifer began, gently gripping the retired detective's hand. The gesture certainly got his attention. I wanted to ask you about an old case you were involved in about 60 years ago. Bill looked to Nate, then back to Jennifer. 60 years ago? I was just a rookie then. I didn't get my detective shield for another five years. This was the Axeman case, Jennifer said. Bill sat back as if hit in the chest. He whistled through his teeth. I haven't thought about that one in a while. Certainly wasn't my biggest case, and it wasn't even really mine. I just happened to be on duty that night when the call came in. Why are you asking me about the Axeman? It's related to a case Nate and I are investigating. It's not related, Nate countered. There's a woman who lives in the same building who's being harassed by an ex-boyfriend. Bill smiled warmly to Jennifer. He can be stubborn, can't he? He said. Jennifer smiled back and nodded. That's part of what makes him a good cop, but keeps him from being a great one. Bill glanced back at Nate to see if the remark would engender a response. But it didn't. This was a criticism that was not new to Nate. Well, since you came out all this way, I'll tell you what I know, and then you can tell me if it helps you at all. Okay, Jennifer responded. Well, it was a crazy time to be a rookie on the force. I was about three months out of the academy when he started killing. The last one, the one he murdered at the arms, was the only victim I actually saw. A lot of the guys threw up when they viewed the body. Her head was almost completely cut off. So much blood. Bill realized he was painting a rather gruesome picture and continued on with his narrative. Anyway, there was this call into the station from someone who claimed they saw a man carrying an axe and heard a woman scream at the arms. Everyone was on high alert. There was a lot of political pressure, so it wasn't unusual to see a dozen cars converge on the scene. We didn't have walkie-talkies in those days, but most of the cars had radios. Me and my partner were the second to arrive. We had been instructed to secure the building and wait for the detectives to get there. Maloney and Jackson went around to the back, and me and my partner Kendall took the front. More cars arrived and filled up the streets, but no one was allowed in or out of the building until the detectives got there. The building superintendent had told us there was another door to the basement, used to be for the coal that heated the place when it first went up. Before they could send anyone down to the basement to check it out, the detectives arrived. There was a lot of confusion at that point, orders being shouted about, policemen wanting to be close to the action in case this was it. We almost didn't notice him. He came into the lobby from the stairs. I don't know exactly what bothered me about him. He was a fireman and was wearing his turnout coat. A lot of them used them as winter jackets back then. Not that the police department or the fire department paid all that much. But it was the kind of thing that made someone invisible in a crowd like that. We weren't looking for an off-duty fireman. We were looking for a bloodthirsty killer. Some monster of a man wielding an axe with a crazed look in his eyes. This guy was none of that. Just the type of guy I'd run into a hundred times before. I remember seeing him, and he looked at me and nodded. You know, just the kind of nod you give a fellow when you're passing to be polite. But there was something about the way he was walking, the way he held his hands. The sleeves of his coat were long, and you couldn't even see his fingertips. I didn't even think to look down at his shoes. I had it in my head that his pants would be so long that you couldn't see his shoes either, like when a kid dresses up in his dad's clothes. But I had reached into my pocket to grab my notebook, 
I thought I should write down that I had seen this guy in case it was important later. They always told us to write everything down. Anyway, someone bumped my arm and I dropped my notebook. Bent down to pick it up, and while I was down near the floor, I glanced over at this guy. I could see his shoes. I could see blood on them, even though I didn't immediately recognize it as blood. I just thought to myself, wonder what he stepped in. Bill paused at this point. I stood up and looked back up into his face. Only his expression had changed. He saw me looking at his shoes, and the friendly smile he had was different. Forced somehow. He looked like he just wanted to get out of there. I asked him to stop, and he did. Then I asked him to put his hands behind him, and I saw the blood there, too. It was unmistakable. I must have loosened my grip on his arm at that point, because the next thing I knew he had twisted around, grabbed my wrist, and forced me to my knees. He let go, then ran off back in the direction he came. Bullets were flying, men were shouting. The detective in charge, Hoffman, was the only one who remained calm. He asked me what had happened, and I told him about the blood. He gave some orders, then had me join him as he went up the stairs. The guy was fast, and by the time we got there, the stairwell was empty. We checked each floor on the way up to make sure there was an officer on guard and kept going up and up. Before I knew it, we were on the roof. It was threatening to rain all day, but now it meant it. There was a stiff wind up there, and I made sure to steer clear of the edge of the building. As we were looking around, it was during a flash of lightning that I saw him, standing on the parapet. I let Detective Hoffman know what I saw, but when we got there, he was gone. He had fallen to the roof below. It was some time later that we found his last victim. We did a door-to-door search. Hoffman kind of took me under his wing that night. Whenever he worked the scene I was at, he invited me to offer my observations. And he was always encouraging me to take the detective's exam. Eventually, I did. Did the X-Men know any of his victims? Jennifer asked. The last girl was the only one he had any connection to. According to his neighbors, they dated. He had pursued her for a while before she agreed to go out with him. Her friends said she thought he was wonderful, and they were even talking about getting married. But there were also rumors that she was seeing someone else, a married man in the building. Nate entered the conversation. That would give him a motive for the last victim, but what about the others? Bill shrugged. We never did figure that one out. Later on, when profiling became a thing, I remember some FBI guys came out and asked about the case. Most of them were sold on some theory about how his killing of the other woman was some kind of release so that he could maintain a normal relationship with his girlfriend. Something to do with how they all kind of looked alike. Most of them? Nate asked. Bill grinned. There was one guy who didn't think Luther Laramie had killed the other girls. In fact, he suggested he hadn't killed any of them. Then who did? Jennifer asked. Who knows? There were never any other suspects, Bill replied. Jennifer continued her questions. Did Luther live in the building? No, the girl did. He lived in a tenement with his mother in the Tenderloin. The mother was adamant that he hadn't killed anyone. He even tried to offer alibis for the other murders. But after Luther Laramie fell to his death, the killing stopped. Fell? You don't think he jumped? Jennifer asked. I guess he could have. In fact, that was the theory at the time, since there really wasn't any other reason to go up there. There were no fire escapes or ladders leading down? Nate asked. There were, but there were cops at the bottom of each one. Bill turned to Jennifer. Did I help you out at all? Yes, very much. Can I ask you one more question? You can ask me questions all day, Bill told her. What floor did the victim live on? The tenth floor, Bill answered without hesitation. Apartment 1008. Jennifer looked over at Nate. That's the same department Diane lives in. They must have switched from numbers to letters at some point. 10H, 
was 1008. They might not have renumbered them in the same order. It could be any of the 20 other units on the floor. Remember the first rule of investigation, Bill admonished his great-nephew. There is no such thing as coincidence. You know, we have DNA now. We don't have to rely on old sayings. I lost count of the number of cases I solved because of some stray fact that someone else discarded as a coincidence. I know, I know, Nate assured him. But those were real crimes, not ghost stories. There's a ghost? Bill asked Jennifer. Is that what this is about? Possibly, she offered with a sly grin. I'm a parapsychologist. Bill smiled. Nate's mother says she speaks with her dead husband. I talk to Lillian all the time, but she never talks back. Maybe you're just not listening the right way. All right, enough of the psychic mumbo-jumbo. I don't need two relatives chasing seances, interrupted Nate. Bill ignored his nephew and continued his conversation with Jennifer. Anyway, I don't think she can hear me. If she's hanging around anywhere, she's in my house. Well, Nate added, if she gives me a message, I'll let you know. Jennifer perked up, shifting her attention to Nate. You live in your uncle's house? Great uncle, Nate corrected. Did Lillian pass away in the house? Jennifer asked Bill. She did. She loved that place. I couldn't stay there anymore after she passed. I was glad Nate was able to take it off my hands. Though, if I'd known at the time how high property values would go, I would have just rented it to him. He added jokingly. Jennifer gave Nate a suggestive glance. What? he asked. You've described some impossible things happening at your home. I don't have a ghost. You said there was no way the dog could have gotten out of that cage. Bill jumped back into the conversation. You locked a poor dog in a cage? Your aunt would never have allowed that. He turned to Jennifer. She loved dogs. We had one when we were first married, but after it died, she didn't have the heart to get another one. It was too painful for Lillian to lose a pet. Jennifer took the ammunition offered by Bill and aimed it back at Nate. Your aunt, who died in the house where you live, loved dogs so much she would never have allowed one to be locked up. Nate rose from the bench. You two can continue weaving your paranormal fantasies. I need to get home and feed that dog before she chews up any more furniture. Jennifer turned to Bill with a grateful smile. Thank you, Uncle Bill, she said, purposely adopting the familial reference. It was really nice meeting you. And you, my dear. Please come back any time. I will. I want to hear all about what Nate was like as a child. Oh, in that case, I have some good stories for you, but you'll have to make more than one visit. Deal, Jennifer said. She leaned over and kissed the older man on the cheek. Bill's eyes widened. You're going to give him a stroke if you keep that up, Nate warned. Jennifer rose and held her hand out to Bill. Can we walk you back to your room? Bill took her hand, but instead of pulling himself up, he kissed it gently. No, I want to sit out here for a while. It's such a nice day. It is, Jennifer agreed. Thank you again. I'll see you next week, Nate promised. Not if you don't bring her with you, Bill warned. We'll see. Nate started walking away. Jennifer squeezed Bill's hand one last time, then turned to catch up with Nate. Thank you for listening to Part 7 of Near Death a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosick. Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day, and don't forget to check out my books on Amazon, and follow me there. 
to make sure you get notified of when Book 2 Afterlife is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.